0: Hey, everyone. I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly, and this is A Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, audience development, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com amopodcast to receive 10% off a yearly subscription. My guest this week is John Yednak, co-founder and president of Aging Media, a vertical company focused on the business of aging. During our 40-minute discussion, we talked about how he and his brother George formed the company, the editorial framework that all the sites have, the diversified revenue streams across the organization, and how they think about events going forward. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Aging media has been one of my go-to examples of B2B media since starting a media operator because it's the perfect example of something so niche, the average person has likely never heard of it. But for people within the specific industries, it is a must-use resource. What is aging media and how did it come to be?
1: So uh, thank you for that quick intro. And I always like to say aging is not a niche. Aging is a vertical. <laughs> um, but, uh, but Aging Media, so we are the largest B2B publisher focusing on the $8 trillion aging services industry. We started about nine years ago. Uh, I started the business with my brother, uh, George Yednek. We had started with uh, the origin of the company really even starts before that. I had started a website called Reverse Mortgage Daily. It was back when blogs were starting to get hot and I was just a college dropout working in the mortgage industry, was reading about TechCrunch and all these you know uh, bloggers that were making a bunch of money. and you know being a young naive guy, I was like, hey, I think I can do that. And so you know I picked one of the coolest topics ever in reverse mortgages and uh, did that for about five years until I figured it out and uh, started to make a few bucks. I hired my first employee named Liz Ecker, who is still actually with us today as our uh, VP of content. And um, kind of got that going. And during during all that time period, my brother started a website called Senior Housing News. So we were uh, having lunch one day in a, a Cuban restaurant in Chicago. And I said, you know, why don't we combine our companies? And I uh, I, I say companies very lightly. And um, at that time, Senior Housing News was, was a bit more consumer facing. And so what we did was we took it, spun it hardcore B2B, and it just kind of took off. So since then, um, we've grown into... We have six different publications now. We're the largest publisher in senior housing, home health, skilled nursing, hospice, and then we recently got into behavioral health as well. So um, incredibly diversified. We make money in a lot of ways, everything from you know your um, typical digital advertising to in-person events, virtual events. We do some paid research, and then we're getting ready to also launch a membership product across all the different verticals. But it's been a wild ride. Uh, I think we're 26 full-time employees right now. And have uh, you know, our ambitions keep keep getting bigger and bigger as we, as we get forward to this.
0: So we're going to talk about all of that on this episode. But I do want to lean in a little bit towards the when you two formed the company, because for the first four to six years, it was just reverse mortgage daily and senior housing news, separate companies, two brothers talking about boring ass topics. And then you started to you, you merged together and started to expand into these other verticals, all related to the aging space. Can you talk more about what made you realize that merging was the right approach, and then your strategy for identifying new verticals to move into? And then to expand on that even farther, what are the key variables you look for for every new vertical?
1: Sure. So when when we with reverse mortgage daily it was the the industry was start was was growing fairly fast at that point but with the mortgage or the financial crisis in you know 2007 started to kind of face some headwinds and so you know I was looking for other things for us to do because I had these you know two employees and so with senior housing it, you know we started to think just because they're both in the aging market. And to be honest, at that point we were still fairly new to, you know, the aging services market. But you know, you always hear the term ten thousand baby boomers are turning sixty-five, you know, for the next thirty plus years. We figured it was a good place to start. And so, but what really happened, and I'd say really the genesis of kind of where the company got a lot more exciting, in my opinion, was once we figured out on senior housing news and what we were doing because at that point there were still competitors in the market but what we came to market with was a purely digital product um, all of our competitors were typically more old school b2b trade rags with print publications and you know some old school kind of investment letters that were still sending stuff out in pdf so what we found was if we come to market with a pure digital product that has better editorial and we're publishing on a regular basis typically daily we can kind of come in and clean the clock at old school b2b media companies and so we did that in senior housing news. It worked. And I think the, you know, you do, if you can do it once, you're lucky. If you can do it twice, I think you're pretty good. But then if you do it a third time, in my opinion, you've really got something. And so what we did was we started to hear about all these senior living providers looking to get into home health and, you know, and, and uh, get into home care. And at the end of the day, I mean, as you age, most people want to be in the home. So we thought that was going to be a good place for us to get into. And I would say we what we kind of made a mistake at the beginning, actually. I would say we kind of half-assed it. But after that, we my brother and I were sitting down one day. We're like, hey, we either go and we do this or we, uh, we shut it down. Because at that time, we had kind of half a reporter on it. And you can't really do anything well when you don't really dedicate the resources behind it. So we decided, you know what, let's go, let's do it. And so we put two reporters behind it and the thing just kind of took off. So well, once we've done that, now home healthcare is actually our biggest market that we're in. But what we've really found is we have an editorial framework that we train our teams on and having that editorial framework and that repeatable process that we can launch across, you know in my opinion, any vertical, not even outside of aging, if we have so decided. But it's one of those, once you have the editorial framework and you know who you are as a company from an editorial perspective, all the other stuff really starts to fall into place. And I think that's what makes us different. And I'm not saying we're the only B2B media company out there that's like that, but it's one of those editorial is our biggest asset that we have. And so we invest heavily into it. and We see it as like such an important part of our core and who we are that it kind of fuels all the other business lines that we get into. Um, I, f- I know there's other questions. Help me Help me remember. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, you know, when you when you do decide to expand into other verticals, you know, what are you looking for from an audience perspective or from an advertising based perspective? Like what what are the key things that tell you that that is the right vertical to expand into?
1: Yeah, so great question. So we typically look for industries that are really big, um, really complicated. And this third one's kind of a joke, but it's also true is we look for things that are unsexy. And what I mean by that is typically, if you're picking things that are really big, obviously, there's a huge market there. I like stuff that's really, really complicated. And I like stuff that's complicated because I think we can add a lot of value. So typically, if there's a lot of government regulation, um, if there's a lot of technology you know, disruption, that means that we can provide our audience with a lot of tools on how they manage that. And so the more, you know, when you talk about government re- regulation, it's changing so much on a regular basis that for these companies to really keep up with it, it's so difficult. And so for us, from an editorial and just as a, a company standpoint, we can really help people navigate these really complicated markets. And so the value to to them for us is just continues to get bigger as we go through it. And so I, I'd say those are really the three things we look for. And the unsexy one is kind of it's kind of a joke, but like, you know, I like markets that nobody else really wants to be in. It's like, you know, everybody else, everybody laughed at me when we got into hospice, and I always use that as a perfect example because it's like hospice twenty six billion dollars a year spent on hospice today, but there was nobody covering it on a regular basis, and that just blew my mind. And so it's one of those we got into that while everybody was laughing at us, and that's actually been our fastest uh, vertical that we've gotten to profitability in the history of the company. So it's one of those where we kind of have a model now, and so it's one of those we continue to look, you know, for different verticals and. You know, I think we got at least one, maybe two, you know, on the list here. But we typically try and launch one one vertical a year. And so it's nice because from the growth of the company, it's one of those where each time we'd launch a vertical, it typically takes us about two years to get it to break even, uh, maybe a little bit more depending on which vertical. But it's one of those we continue to have those pops, and once the vertical hits a certain kind of critical mass, we then add different products to it, whether it's in person events, paid research, lead gen, things like that. And so. We we have a we have a playbook and it just takes time to run it, but if you do it right, you know it works.
0: We're going to talk about the team structure because I think that that there's an underlying component of that that supports the playbook you're referencing. But can you expand on the editorial framework? What does that look like at Aging Media?
1: Yeah, so at, at its core, what we call us is that we everything we do is uh, you know our editorial ethos, for lack of a better term, is exclusive news and analysis that people can't get, get anywhere else. And when we started, it was a little bit more uh, <laughs> vulgar than that. But it, 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 at, the end, it, at, at our core, that's really what we do. And we walk people through in terms of what that looks like. And so we have examples of stories you know, that we've written that we would classify as an A, M, N, A. And so, that's, so we have our A stories, and we kind of have our B, B and B plus stories. And so we really kind of classify what type of story is this, who is it reaching, and what does it need to become an A, M, N, A. And so as long as we're creating those stories that people can't get elsewhere, everything else kind of falls into line because that's why people sign up because they're not getting it from all these different sources. And frankly, at the end of the day, it's like we've shied away from writing for press releases and different stuff like that. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there's the time and a place for it. But typically, historically, in my opinion, The average B2B, I wouldn't even say average, the majority of B2B publishers are just writing on stuff that comes in that comes that's sent to them, whereas we actually go chase. And I would say that's the other kind of characteristic is that we don't always just catch. We don't just catch news coming to us, we go chase it. And I think that's one of the things that from my perspective, it also puts us at a competitive advantage because it's really hard and that frankly it takes time. And not everybody wants to put in that time and put in that effort in the editorial. But for us, it's kind of our race in the hole where it's like, look, we're going to do the hard work and we're going to outwork you. Um, Not necessarily just from like a time perspective, but we're going to do the hard stuff that you're not going to do. And so, you know, to all my competitors, I just kind of say, bring it.
0: So let's expand a little bit and talk about the team composition because you have six different verticals. Does each vertical have its own dedicated editorial team and its own dedicated sales team? Or do you centralize specific operations?
1: across the verticals? Great question. So all of editorial is separated. So our trifecta is kind of what I call it, is our perfect mix, is we have an editor that's kind of the leader of the site from an editorial perspective, obviously, and then they typically will have two reporters under them. So what we found is that's kind of all we need in order to really cover our industries at at the depth that we think is... Um, sufficient and, frankly, more than our competitors. So with three people dedicated to each one of our verticals, that's really where we want to be. Now, we're not quite there on some of the verticals. They have to get to a certain revenue size before we start to do that, but we're there on the majority of them. And so it's one of those, the editors are kind of the the leaders of the site and the face of the site, and they really direct the editorial vision along with with me as they report to me. And um, we kind of define that going into it, and then they execute on that plan with my oversight. Um, but no, I mean, our, our, editorial teams are fantastic. So our editors are really the leaders in the face of that site. And then the reporters, you know, report under them. And that, that's really how we have that set up. But the nice thing about it is everything else is central is runs, um, out of a central like kind of op system that's run by my brother. So my brother runs, all of the revenue and operations side. And so, all of our marketing. And so, in terms of like our branded content and our lead gen and our webinars and stuff like that, that's all run from a different side of the house, but they can service all of our different verticals from a relatively small team. So, it's nice where the business really does start to scale where you have editorial has to be separate, in my opinion, just because with our verticals, they're so niche and we go so deep that it's hard to find people, frankly, that can cover more than one and cover it well. Um, So we really, again, editorial is fairly separate in terms of how we structure that, but all of our ops and marketing, that's all totally centralized and they support all the different verticals.
0: I want to pivot the conversation and talk a little bit about technology, because part of the reason that vertical media companies can scale to multiple verticals is because they tend to share the same tech. So by and large, what is the technology stack that your sites are built on? And then with exception, you have one, I believe, that is built on HubSpot. So why haven't you moved every site to HubSpot or this tech stack that you use for the others?
1: No, so the tech stack, it fits into our model. So the tech stack at its core, our most important part, in my opinion, is really um, it's our uh, it's our email, obviously, which is where, you know, almost 60, I'm typically, typically on our verticals, almost 60% of our traffic every day comes from our daily email list, which is you know um, so core and so, so important to us. But at the end of the day, our tech stack in terms of our website is all WordPress based. So it's run off WordPress MU, it's one install. And so the nice thing about that is if we wanna launch a new website, I can typically get it launched in about an hour. And it looks the exact same as all of our other verticals. Typically the colors are gonna be a little different, but when your technology stack is run off all the same things, you start to have all these competitive advantages over other people is that um, all of our ads are the same. And so anybody can sell across any of our verticals if they need it to. So all the ads that are running all the same, all the different options are the same. So it's one of those, you have a repeatable business, even our media kits and stuff like that are look pretty much the same, just with a different um, brand on it. And so it's one of those, the tech stack is really core to what we do because it scales because it's replicable. And it's one of those, once you have a good foundation, you can then launch it into new verticals really, really easy, and at that point, it really becomes a people business. And so, it, you know, I look at media; it's like the tech is the simple part, in my opinion, for the most for the most part, where people is the hard thing. And you know, we can get a lot better at that. But you know, I'm really proud of what we've done. But media and media people is the hard part. Um, the tech stack is is much easier. But in terms of your question on HubSpot, I love HubSpot. Um, it's what really got us going in terms of getting into lead gen and stuff like that. But it's just not. Uh, it's not really what we're going to be doing long term. And I mean, they know that, but they, they've been a great partner. It's just it doesn't scale and it gets too expensive for us.
0: I want to now talk about audience development uh, in part because I think, you know, as a creator myself, I run a newsletter by myself and I have to manage the entire operation. Whereas media companies, you know, the, the benefit of a media company is that audience development is its own function. How do has your audience development strategy evolved over the years? And do you now have a playbook that you deploy for every vertical when you launch, or is it unique to each launch?
1: So typically, I mean, it all starts with the editorial that we produce. And, you know, that's always been the fuel of our audience development where, you know, we've gotten better at converting people from the site. You know, I remember when we got started, you know, our average conversion rate was going to be like, you know, 002 Because we didn't really know what we were doing, but we've gotten better. And you know, you can get you know people converting at two to four percent on a regular basis. It starts to move faster. But I would say if there's one area where we're really starting to invest and we're looking to make some fairly big moves is how do we scale audience development and get it going faster? So for us, since it's George and I, and you know, we own the company, I would say we're fairly patient in terms of how we build sites. And you know, it'll take us anywhere. We you know we start every audience pretty much that we start starts at zero. Um, you know, if we're launching into a market that has, uh, into an adjacent market that has some overlap, that's always nice because we can announce it on one vertical and then get people to sign up to kind of give us a good base. But at the end of the day, you know, I always joke, I'm the first one to sign up for each of our email lists. And then we grow it one by one and, you know, we earn every single one of those subscribers. So up until about two months ago, we had never paid for any um, um, advertising or marketing to grow our lists. It's all been organic. And again, it's one of those. I'm I'm a big proponent of quality over quantity. You know, I'd rather have a thousand of the top CEOs in our markets than you know ten thousand you know lower level. Uh, people, you know, I can market that list a lot easier, in my opinion, than the list of ten thousand. But again, the goal is to get these lists bigger and to do it faster. And I think that's where our business starts to get really, really exciting. Is we've done this all organically, right? And we've done it—I don't want to say slowly, but we've done it the hard way. What happens if we come in and we start to invest some of our resources into growing those lists faster? And what if I can take instead of a vertical taking me two to three years to get to profitability? What if I can get it there in twelve months? And then instead of launching one, what if I launch three? And so I think that's where our business gets really exciting. And that's where we're starting to go. And, you know, we're starting to make those investments to make that a reality faster.
0: And all of that leads us to the way that we pay the bills, which is the commercial operation. Uh, And I have a variety of questions on this. First things first, aging media is by and large an advertising driven business. Can you walk through the various products that you offer and how you price them to your clients?
1: Yeah, so it's going to be different in each market. You know, some markets are bigger than others, but you know, at our core, we're about you know, I'd say 40, 40 to fifty percent. You know, typically, your digital advertising, and that could be everything from display ads to email ads, which are you know our best performer. So it could be a simple text text ad calling to uh, um, you know, an asset that you know hopefully we produced or our client had produced, um, and then you know another twenty. I think we're about twenty to twenty five percent in person events. At least we were until COVID. Um, And then the rest is going to be branded content and lead gen. So the nice thing about coming to a company like Aging Media is that typically, if you're going to be in aging services, you're not typically just in senior housing. You're going to be in senior housing and you're going to be in skilled nursing. And so it's one of those where we're unique in in the sense that people can come to us and we can service them in multiple verticals. So from a commercial standpoint, we're kind of a one... I don't want to say we're a one-stop shop, but I want to be. And so we do have competitors, but none of our competitors play in all the markets that we do. And so you can come to Aging Media and you can say, hey, I want to take X amount of budget and I want to put it towards senior housing. I want to take X amount of budget and I want to put it towards home health. Oh yeah, you guys are also in hospice. We're about to launch product there. Let's talk about that in Q4 when we have extra budget. And so it's one of those where we really take a much more consultative approach with our clients because you're not really just in one of these markets. You're typically looking at all of them. And so from a competitive advantage standpoint, it's really hard to compete with us. So not only do we have all the reach, but then we also have our branded content team, which knows these markets. And I think that's the thing that people always look at aging. And it's like we've had some competitors trying to come into the space every once in a while. And it's not easy to learn these markets. And so we have this in-depth like knowledge that our marketing teams have that not really many people can compete with. And so it's one of those that in-depth knowledge, our audience reach into all these different verticals, really sets us apart from our competition um, and how you know we execute our business every day.
0: How have you been thinking about the expansion of your branded content team? And the reason I ask is uh, earlier on another show, I had Sean Griffey, the CEO of Industry Dive, and they've obviously been making a ton of investment on their branded content team. So where do you see that team and that product evolving across your verticals?
1: Yeah. I, you know, I'm not taking as big of a bet as Sean, but you know, I also don't have as big a backing as Sean. (laughs) Um, But it's one of those, we do see huge opportunity there, but for us it's, it's lumpy. And so what I mean by lumpy is that it's one of those, I'd love to staff up on it, but we need to make sure that there's enough demand there. And so we do see demand in our branded content services or seeing, um, you know, continuing to grow. It's just one of those where we've, you know, we're We're always careful about adding headcount. You know, we just do it the right way, in my opinion. And so it's one of those where um, we see a huge opportunity in brand content. It's just one of those where we're not ready to you know kind of bet the house on adding a bunch of headcount there. We'd rather continue to invest in editorial. And there's ways that you can grow brand content faster. But again, I think it's one of those worth, um, especially with COVID coming, you know, people need leads. And so when I think about branded content, I really think about it as a lead gen source for people. And that's something that I think we've excelled at and it's taken us a while to get good at it. But, you know, I mean, we did our first white paper like seven years ago, you know, um, on HubSpot and that's really what kind of taught us. But it's one of those, we've gotten so much better at it there when COVID hit and people needed leads, you know, I'd like to think we were the first people they came to.
0: Moving to another product uh, that you offer on some of the verticals, you know, you offer some awards products like a rising leaders product, uh, and and things like that. How do you decide when it's time to introduce an awards product for one of the verticals and what is the business model for these? Because it's not always so cut and dry.
1: Yeah. So the, I mean, the business model is typically pretty, uh, pretty simple. So there's an entry fee that's charged, um, you know, in order to submit your project or to submit your candidate. And, you know, in my opinion, that's very justified because frankly, there are a lot of work to put on. But as far as the awards products that we see, it's really about community. And it's one of those where we got started with awards and it was the architecture and design awards uh, back This is probably six or seven years ago in senior housing news. And, you know, any anytime we do anything, we, we just kind of throw it up against the wall and we see if it sticks. And it was one of those where all of a sudden I'll never I'll never forget it. Because it was the first time we had ever done it, and you know my brother and I, it was back when we were probably five or six people we were like, "Holy shit, you know, it's two days before it closes, and I, I kid you not man, I think we had one entry. And so we're getting all nervous. We're like, all right, we might just have to close <laughs> close this up and act like it never happened. But all of a sudden, you know, I'd say about you know 36 hours before we started to get a couple entries and we started to get a couple more entries. and it's kind of like it's kind of like a drug. you start to get these entries and they come in. And then all of a sudden, by the end of it, I think we had like 72 entries. So we had over 70 entries come in the last like, you know, 36 hours. So all of a sudden, we're like, all right, there's something here. And so the coolest thing for me, at least with the award stuff, is that we've seen, you know, our awards badges and SEC filings when people get acquired. We've seen it up on stage at not only our events, but also like, you know, huge, like, um, you know, national events with these people saying how proud they are because they won one of these events. And so it's one of those where we've we've taken I'd say inspiration from our senior housing um, architecture and design awards and we tried to apply that to our other verticals and that's one of the things that I love about B2B and especially vertical media is that once you do it once in one vertical it you can typically do it in others and so we've we've done that with a little bit of our awards but rather than launch individual awards on each of the publications at this point what we've really done is we started to make the aging media brand bigger and more prominent and so we started to wrap our awards under the Aging Media brand where part of the value that we bring to our industry, in my opinion, is because we're such a player in all these markets that all everybody typically does work together a little bit. But when you look at healthcare, everything's moving to a value-based care world and everybody's starting to play together. And so what we're really trying to do with aging media is bring these different verticals together and help them do business and help them, you know, execute on, you know, care plans for the aging population together and frankly say save people money. And so it's one of those with the awards programs with future leaders, our goal was to launch we launched it across all the different verticals, under aging media brand. And then we were gonna throw a big party for all these people in Chicago at an in-person event. And then of course COVID happened. So we weren't able to execute on that as well as I would have liked. But going forward, that's really where we're taking aging media, where not only are we covering all these individual verticals and going deep, but we're going to start bringing everybody together. And, you know, I always joke that we're trying to create the Davos of senior living. And, you know, everybody kind of jokes and laughs at me, but I'm dead serious. And so it's one of those where we're going to bring together the biggest and baddest of all the people in aging, you know, and help them connect and help them do deals and really kind of help them take this industry forward. And that's really at its core kind of where the awards come in, where it's about community. It's not just about winning the awards, about bringing people together, helping them do things and, you know, making sure everybody's successful.
0: Talking about people being successful. I'm interested in the job board that is on senior housing news, because in my career, I have launched and failed at (laughs) building two niche job boards. Um, Does the job board have a material impact on the business? And if it does, do you intend on expanding to the other verticals?
1: no uh it doesn't have a huge material uh (laughs) impact on the business it's there it works um i always joke that the um we like to sell stuff that's a little bit more expensive to be frank um and it's one of those where i could actually see us you know there have been times where we poked around getting into more of like the executive recruiting stuff because we actually you know there's an opportunity there but we've never pulled the trigger on that but no i i I haven't figured out job words either jacob so don't (laughs) don't feel bad about it but um now, you know, it runs, we fulfill the contract and we do what we do. All
0: right. So let's talk about uh, what's coming for senior housing news first, but then also the rest of the verticals, because it appears that you've introduced and you've said it before a membership component, which when I first wrote about aging media, it was September of 2019, I believe you didn't have a membership component. So what is the membership and how did you come up with the price for that? Because pricing can be a little tricky. And how has it been working thus far?
1: You're good, man. Uh, You've done your research. Uh, Yeah, no, we actually, so we quietly launched SHN Plus on Senior Housing News about two, three weeks ago. Um, And what we're looking to do there is to service, you know, to bring community together, but also provide them even more in-depth and exclusive um, reporting and analysis that they can't get elsewhere. And so it's one of those, I wouldn't call the a paywall, but initially to launch it, we had been doing these individual paid reports and it was actually pretty successful for us. So, I mean, it was a six-figure business, multiple six figures, actually, um, business for us in Senior Housing News. But what we found when we were creating the individual reports, is that it was really hard to pick winners. So, for example, we would launch, let's just say, eight reports in a year, and these were really in depth, like five thousand um, word, really well researched uh, reports. And we would release one, and it would do, it would kill it. I'd sell fifty grand of a report, and then we would release another, and I'd sell five of them. And so it was one of those. It was like you were almost like it was like releasing a music album where you're gonna have like two hits that just killed it. And the rest were kind of the duds. And so the way we're looking at membership is how do we, rather than, because the, the challenge with that was we were trying to pick winners and not do research that w- that the industry really needed and kind of go deeper on subjects to we, had to, we had to appeal to the masses and not necessarily like a certain segment and do like the reporting, at least in our opinion, that we think needed to be done. And so with the membership, I think it takes... Um, it takes obviously like the cyclical nature of that and kind of the highs and the lows and it helps hopefully makes it a much more sustainable business going forward because it's one of those where if we can offer a ton of value for somebody and it allows us to take a longer term approach and not have to only release hits every single time, um, that we think, you know, um, might not necessarily be the best stuff that we should be doing, I think that's a good business long term. But, it, it, you know, our vision for the membership program long term, again, is to foster that community that we know we have and we've built and we've seen it, uh, you know, at our in-person events. But How do we bring that online? So we're kind of running the playbook that I think you've seen at some other places where we're going to have, you know, uh, you know, typical webinars where you're going to get access to our editorial teams. We're going to be able to ask them questions. Uh, we're also going to do individual one-on-one chats with like really high-level executives that a lot of people don't necessarily get access to, and so you're going to get to be able to ask these guys questions, these um, these men and women questions that you know typically people wouldn't have access to. So we're going to kind of pull back the hood a little bit in terms of how we do editorial and really provide more access to our editorial teams because that's one of the interesting things that we found over the last six to twelve months is that we've had people come to us trying to that have wanted to do us to do consulting work. And so it's one of those where we've looked at that as a business and how do we add, you know, a kind of, I, I want to call it proper research and kind of consulting division to, to the company. And while we're not quite there, we do see this as kind of the first step because people can come and get access to our editorial teams and be able to ask them questions. And they've never been able to do that. So initial results have been really positive. Um, so again, it's, you know, three weeks old and, you know, we kind of, I don't want to say we hacked it together, but, you know, we, we, we bootstrap everything here. And so we got it up and running and, you know, I think we sold, you know, 30 or 40, uh, or probably about 35 memberships, I think in the first two weeks. So there's something there, um, you know, we're going to continue building on that. And the goal of this, and again, with everything we do, we do it once on one vertical and then we roll it out to all the others. So we already have a game plan and a roadmap to launch it on two other verticals. But again, we want to make sure that what we do is successful on one, because typically what we do, and again, I really truly believe this is if you do it right on one vertical, It applies to all the other verticals because at the end of the day, audiences, no matter the vertical, really want that exclusive news and analysis they can't get elsewhere. They want in-depth research. They want access to your editorial team to be able to ask questions. And at the end of the day, they really want that community. So if we can prove it on one vertical and make it a good business, I know we can bring it to the others. And that's really where it gets exciting.
0: So you've mentioned COVID quite a few times on the show, and that makes a lot of sense because a decent part of your business has been events how has your strategy evolved since COVID-19 hit? And then discussing the business model of your events, are they mostly sponsor-driven or is there an attendee revenue component as well?
1: Uh, for So g- great question. So yeah, no, I mean, events are a big part of our business. Um, you know, I think there were 20 to 25% of our business last year. Uh, I think we saw that growing a little bit, but nothing crazy. But there's a lot of ways. I think COVID COVID's impacted us from a standpoint of, we had to take all those events and convert them to virtual. So virtual has taught us a lot in terms of what people want and you know what people are willing to pay for. We typically can launch you know a, virt- a virtual event really quickly and get it up and you know get speakers. Speaker acquisition is a lot easier, obviously. And you know, our goal with virtual has been to test out all these different models. And so we've done everything from a paid virtual event to a totally sponsored one to, you know, a mixture of both. But, you know, our, our transition to virtual worked really well. And I have to credit my brother who, you know, was instrumental and frankly just did whatever he needed to do to get it done and did a fucking amazing job. Um, and we wouldn't be here without him and his team uh, doing that. But going forward in terms of how we look at events, we always like to say we'd rather be small and expensive. And so we want to be exclusive. We don't necessarily want to cater to everybody. And so it comes back to like, you know, my Davos of senior care, if I had any, you know, kind of direction of where we're going, that's really where it's going. So it's those exclusive, high-end events at really nice places where people can come and get access to speakers that they typically wouldn't get, but also be able to kind of relax, let their guard down, and hopefully do some deals. Because at the end of the day, B two B is about community more than anything. I mean, all of these people that you're bringing together, they're all working together for the most part. They're doing MA, they're doing transactions, and they need to get business done. And so that's really, I think, if COVID taught us anything. It's not that we were doing these huge events before with expo shows, because I'll, I'll never do those, at least not <laughs> in the foreseeable future. But it's brought us back to say, hey, what's the most important thing about events? And again, it's really focused us on the community aspect of it and helping people do transactions. Because at the end of the day, that's what keeps people coming back. It's not necessarily you know the trade show booths with all the crap on the floors and all that stuff. So I mean, that doesn't get me excited. But doing the Davos of Senior Care, yeah, I can get excited about that.
0: And putting on our fake epidemiologist hat here for a second, with two vaccines announced over the past couple of weeks, at what point do you anticipate people feeling comfortable returning to physical events? And when that time does come, how do you see your event strategy evolving? Do you think it'll be a hybrid approach?
1: Um, You know, it changes every day. Even before this, my brother and I were talking about whether we needed to move into that. So, you know, it really is kind of a moving target. And if I had the answer, you know, I'd I'd be a very, very wealthy man here. But it's one of those where we're looking at it, where we're not taking any huge swings um, on in-person events next year. You know, I think we're looking at most of the stuff coming back in September, but it's tough. I mean, I'm really glad we're not a total events business because I, you know, I feel for all the people that are. Um, There's a lot of really good people that are, you know, Primarily event driven, and you know how you time this is uh, is really tough. But I do think there's an opportunity for people. I mean, you can take a swing, and if you know maybe in June, you know your people, it it might work. But I I will say this: I know just from the conversations that I have in our market, people want to start traveling again. People want to start going to conferences. It's just a matter of when they're going to be allowed to, from a corporate standpoint, and when they're going to feel safe. And so it's one of those we're not making any huge events or huge bets on events for um, you know 2021. Um, 2022 is a whole different story. We already have everything planned and lined up, and I think that's one of the things that COVID's given us not a chance to reset, but it's kind of given us a chance to rethink how we look at events. And frankly, we're more prepared and more ready to execute than we've ever been on our events. And, and again, I, I have to credit you know uh, my brother and his team, Christina and Sophie, they've been fantastic. So if we look
0: forward three years, we're post-COVID, you know, you've got your playbook for verticals. Where do you see aging media evolving over the next few years?
1: You know, I think we keep doing what we're doing. You know, it's one of those where we we've started, uh, you know, what we do works. You know, I think we, over the last three years, we've really figured it out and we're like, all right, we got this. Let's keep going. Let's go faster. And I think, you know, when I think about how aging media evolves over the next three years, we continue to execute on what we do, but we do it in a bigger and I'd say more elevated way where, you know, us bringing all of our communities together is going to be core to our business going forward. You know, that news and exclusive analysis that people can't get elsewhere. That's the hook but so how do we take those people and we kind of bring them down the funnel and start to offer them different services that they need. And, you know, I don't think everybody needs workflows and stuff. Like I think one of the funny things I always see about B2B is everybody wants to offer people workflows and all this kind of stuff. And, and again, there's a place for that, but that's not really our strategy where I think the stickiest thing that we can provide is that community and that bringing people together. And I think that's really where you'll see us go in the next couple of years. But again, you know, our playbook works. And so, you know, I think there's an opportunity for us to, you know, with the right capital, maybe the right partner, how do we make that go a lot faster? You know, I think that's one of the things that gets really exciting and, you know, how big, you know, how big we want to make this. And so again, it's, it's been, uh, you know, my brother and I, we never, we never, you know, we didn't know anything about media when we got into this, and so that's why I always joke. It took us a while to figure it out, but you know, I I'm pretty confident we, we we've we've got most some of it figured it out now. And so, how do we take that and how do we grow it faster? I think that's the most exciting part of our business, where we're in a great spot. But you know, let's 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 take this and let's make it go faster.
0: So let's step away from aging media for a second. You've actually spent a decent amount of time on Twitter talking about the rise of all these creator-led newsletters and the need for media companies and how hard audience development is. On one tweet in the beginning of the month, you actually retweeted uh, my new boss discussing the idea of creating a company that helps creators launch new products like podcasts, grow audience, expand into events so they can do things like all things digital or recode. You even said you'd put the first money in hypothetically, what would the business model of said company actually look like and how would it work and how would it help these creators?
1: Yeah, no, great question. I mean, I, I'm super excited by the, you know, everyone's calling it the passion, the creator economy. I think it's great because, you know, I see it when I started R&D almost 13 years ago, it was a pain in the ass to launch a site. Like, you know, I was running WordPress, you know, I was running that OpenX, it was an open source ad server, it crashed all the time. And again, while I wasn't a developer, I mean, this stuff was tough. And so now the, the ability that people have to be able to launch a Substack or even like I saw Squarespace is getting into membership and all stuff. That part is easy now you know the hard part again is the editorial and doing all that but at a certain stand, or a certain point i think all of these individual creators are going to realize that time is their biggest asset and that asset in my opinion should be focused on creating that editorial that's going to help them get new subscribers but there's a lot of ancillary businesses that they can add to that but you can't do that to yourself. I mean, I think I have pitched you on it before where it's like, you know, I think there's an opportunity for these people to launch in-person events and to launch podcasts and stuff like this. And again, it's one of those where it's about, do you have the time to do it? And not only do you have the time to do it, but do you have the time to do it well? Because it's like, if you have that paid audience that you're catering to, I think they start to expect a certain quality. And while it doesn't need to be, you know, NPR podcast quality or anything like that, it does need to be good enough. And so it's one of those, if there's a company that can help facilitate all those things, whether it's in-person events or a high quality podcast or helping with audience development, which again, I think is the hardest part, especially for the people that don't have the huge followings, there's a business to be had there. And it's funny that one little tweet has led to a couple interesting conversations that I've had and how the business would be set up. I don't know, but it's one of those, I think there's opportunities for joint venture structures and stuff like that, where the nice thing about media is that if you, again, if you do it once and you do it well, you can kind of take it to a new market and you really just do the same thing. And, and again, I think it's like you look at, you know, some of the best media companies out there, in my opinion, are people like Morning Brew, who you work at, uh, whether it's Industry Dive. And, you know, I'd like to say we're, we're pretty cool too, but we all have playbooks. And I think we're all starting to launch those in different markets. And I think that's what gets exciting where who's to say you can't do that. And, you know, in the creator or passion economy, you know, for individuals who frankly there's only so much one person can do, but I think the biggest thing that all these people have to come to grips with is, do they just want to have a newsletter and hopefully make a good living, or do they really want to build a brand and build a media company? I, and I think that's the thing that I don't know the answer to, but um, if there's anybody that wants to build a media company out those, let me know.
0: So I want to finish with the same two questions I ask every single person on this show. First looking at your career, what is a mistake you or the organization made? And what did you learn from it that made you better professionally?
1: Oh, man, there's been so many. Um, You know, I think the biggest thing my brother and I have learned is, if you're going to do something, do it right, and make the investment and do it the right way. You know, as a small bootstrap company, you know, we have to make certain decisions, but you can't half ass anything that you do. And at the end of the day, media is a people business. So I think it's one of those where, you know, we continue to try and get better and take care of our employees. And, you know, I'm proud of what we've been able to do, but especially with the markets that we cover, it's like, you know, what we cover is niche and, you know, we need to really, you know, groom the people that we bring in. We have to teach them about these industries and we have to do things that... uh, you know, it's, it's hard work. And so it's one of those retaining our employees and making sure that they're happy with their jobs and making sure that they feel like they're productive every day is really important to us. But, you know, I mean, we've made every mistake in the book, but I would say the one thing is if you're going to make investments, you got to do it right. And just hire, you know, hire the right people, teach them how to do things. And then, you know, just watch them kind of flourish.
0: And then if you could offer a current or prospective media operator, some advice to succeed in not niche media, but vertical media, what would that advice be?
1: Oh, good question. What would that advice be? Go deeper than your competition. Uh, do things that they can't do. Um, you know, I think one of the things, especially, is that if you look at media, a lot of it feels the same. You know, I think it's like if you're going to look at different websites, a lot of people are reporting on the same stuff. And it, you know, I think everybody, there's a race to do what everybody else is doing. But I think the more that you kind of figure out what sets you apart and what makes you special and really double downing on that. I think you're going to find your audience and you're going to find those people that are going to become your fans or your paying subscribers or even just your free email subscribers, which are incredibly valuable, you know? And it's like one of those, don't get too caught up in like the, the hustle of like building these large email lists, just start small and continue building. And I really think you'll see progress over time and that starts to build and it starts to grow a lot faster. So don't get discouraged if you're starting from scratch, it's hard, but, um, you know, keep going, you'll get there.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.